Amen. Please be seated. If you have a Bible with you, you can open to Acts chapter 1. The text is also printed in the bulletin for you to follow along there. So we're starting a new sermon series in the book of Acts. And um, this week I emailed my old pastor and mentor a few times to get suggestions for commentaries or see if he had preached through this uh, series before. And he had a couple suggestions to make, whatever. But he, <clears throat> he told me this, um, the old yarn is, apparently, that the, the preacher who preaches through the book of Acts uh, at the end of it, leaves the church to go on mission field. <laughs> and uh, I was encouraged because he says, but I guess you're already there. <laughs> Doing a church plant out in the, the edge of the universe as we are. So. <clears throat> um, so as we go through our text this morning, I'll, I'll spend um, actually quite a bit of time introducing the whole book um, And before we read the text, let me just say a couple of preliminary things. Acts, the book of Acts, was probably written in um, the 60s, so about 30-ish years after the death and resurrection of Christ, and some solid uh, commentators even pin it down to 62 AD. Um, There's a bunch of reasons for that, but I think it's pretty reliable. Uh, The author of this book is Luke, and you may recognize that name from the Gospel of Luke. Um, Luke was a physician, he was a fellow traveler with Paul, um, and he wrote the gospel in Acts, actually as a two-volume work, meant to be taken together, uh, meant to portray a a history of Christian origins from kind of a theological perspective. It's a bit unfortunate, if you ask me, that that Luke and Acts are separated in the Bible by John's, uh, John's gospel. So I humbly offer this alternative arrangement (laughs) that John should come first in the New Testament, uh, opening up with languages very similar to the opening of the the Old Testament, right? Both of them start with in the beginning. Uh, And then you should have the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts, uh, so that Luke and Acts get to stay together. So who do you think I should talk to about that? (laughs) Let's, let's make that change. Um, before we do uh, read our passage, let me read um, actually the opening words from Luke's gospel. Just so you can see, I think, the comparison, uh, the similarities there. Luke chapter 1, the first four verses. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught." Theophilus, the recipient of Luke's gospel and um, the book of Acts. Theophilus means beloved of God. Uh, That has led some uh, commentators to think that this person is simply a generic representative for Christians, for believers, that Theophilus wasn't 
real person. Well, it's probably, uh, he probably was a real person, a believer, and yet he also served as a representative for Christians who needed certainty concerning the things that they've been taught, right? The Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts share an author, they share a recipient, and they share a purpose, and so they ought to be taken and read together. And and so I'm sorry that we didn't just get done with a a sermon series on Luke's Gospel, but um, we'll do the best we can. So let's pray, and then we'll read the Scripture. Father in heaven, you have sent Jesus to be our Savior and our Lord, and um, you have taken him back into heaven after he has accomplished our redemption. And the two of you together have sent the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to be with us, to open our minds to things from your word, to encourage us to live as your people in this world. And so we pray for the Spirit, to come upon us and to fill us so that we would understand better your gospel, your grace to us, and that it would truly change us. It would transform us into the likeness and the image of Jesus Christ himself. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, As they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. So, um, perhaps you've noticed, as we just did there, when our scripture reading uh, comes from one of the four Gospels, then the responsive bit there at the end um, is, I say, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, and you say, thanks be to God. And when we read from anywhere else other than the four Gospels, then it's the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. And in beginning to study Acts, I became at least partially persuaded that uh, Acts should be considered gospel, which I'll explain in a minute. So I was wondering what to use there for that responsive reading. Do we say the gospel of Jesus Christ, or do we say the word of the Lord? And a lot of times you hear ministers recite Isaiah 40, verse 8, which says, The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. 
maybe as we're going through the book of Acts, um, we'll use that because Luke would probably say that the word of God standing and advancing into the world is actually an organizing theme of his second volume. In verse 8, we have something like a table of contents for Acts, right? Jesus says to his apostles, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And a simple outline of Acts follows the progress of the word, the testimony, the witness of the apostles about Christ, chapters 1 through 7. It's their testimony in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 12, in all Judea and Samaria, and chapters 13 through the end of the book, 28, to the end of the earth. So, um, from that simple outline and from this command of Christ, you can see mission, the growth of the church by the the radiation of the word of God, the radiation of the gospel um, into the world, forms the structure of the book of Acts. Now, Acts is, um, is kind of a vague title, right? Originally, it had no title. Um, in many Bibles, uh, the one I'm looking at right now says the Acts of the Apostles, right? Uh, several commentators suggest, well, maybe it'd be better to say it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit working through the Apostles. Um, I actually think it'd be better to, to say the acts of the ascended Jesus. And here's why. In, in verse 1 and the uh, first part of verse 2, Luke says, In the first book, O Theophilus, and literally, it's not translated here, but it says, um, On the one hand, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. And the strong implication is um, that this book is about what Jesus continued to do and teach. With his language here, Luke is emphasizing continuity between his first and second volumes, and it's implied that this, this book of Acts, will be a record of Jesus' work um, on earth through the church. Dennis Johnson, uh, in his book on Acts, says this, Luke's story from beginning to end is the story of the acts and teachings of Jesus. This is the first thing Luke wants us to know about the church. Jesus is still at work here and now. And so John Stott suggests um, this for a title for the book of Acts, the continuing words and deeds of Jesus by his spirit through his apostles. (laughs) Maybe that would make a... I don't know, that's too long, right? It's, it's a bit unwieldy. It's thorough, it's accurate, it's precise, but it's a bit unwieldy, so we'll just stick with Acts, I guess. Um, <clears throat> but it is important to consider that Luke is portraying here in this book Jesus' continuing work on the earth. Acts picks up where the Gospels leave off, right? And it serves to confirm the Gospels, to show that, um, that what Jesus began what he did in his um, fulfillment of our redemption, it continues into the beginning of um, the fulfillment of his promises about the church. He said he, was, he would build his church. He is the one who is building his church. 
which he has redeemed by his death on the cross and by his resurrection. At the end of uh, Matthew's gospel, when Jesus commissioned his disciples, he told them, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And in Acts, we see his presence. I am with you always. How can he say that when he's obviously physically in heaven now? He's ascended. He's not here on the earth. He said, I'm with you always to the end of the age. We see his presence through the Spirit, right? with his disciples, with the apostles, as they were sent. Uh, apostle means sent one, right? Missionary. Um, as they were sent to the ends of the earth. And I, Howard Marshall, uh, <clears throat> says this. Luke makes it clear that in his view, the essential task of the church is mission. He says remarkably little about the inner life of the church and concentrates most of his attention on this aspect of the church's task. Moreover, for Luke, mission means evangelism, the proclamation of the good news of Jesus and the challenge to repentance and faith. So um, maybe that provides you with a vague sense of direction <laughs> where we're going to go as we study um, this new series in Acts. For now, let's dig a little deeper into this morning's text. Let me read um, verses 1 through 5 again. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Luke uh, closed his gospel with an account of um, some of the appearances that Jesus made after he was raised from the dead. And he, he, um, he closed it actually with, with an account of the ascension of Christ uh, into heaven. And he is concerned in both the gospel and here to offer eyewitness testimony to the reality of the, the physical, the bodily resurrection and the bodily ascension of Jesus. This kind of thing was just as hard to believe back then as it is now. It's not like they were Neanderthals, superstitious, gullible people back then who thought, oh, yeah, people raised from the dead, no big deal. People flying up into heaven, no big deal. No, people weren't stupid. That doesn't happen, right? People don't just get up from their grave on the third day, and they don't just fly up and, and, and be taken up into a cloud in heaven. That doesn't happen. This is extraordinary. It's only happened once. It is very much out of our regular experience. And so it's hard to believe. And Luke, um, by the way he writes about the resurrection in Jesus, he's, he's trying to convince us that this is really true, right? He writes it with simplicity and with reference to eyewitnesses, just as we would expect from a historical account. 
It actually says five times in this text something to the, to the effect that these people were watching this as he was taken up from them. After Jesus died on the cross, God raised him bodily from the dead. He was no phantom. And after another 40 days of appearing to his disciples and teaching them, speaking about the kingdom of God, God raised him to his right hand in heaven. He was taken up in a cloud. That's the image throughout the Old Testament of God's divine presence and the glory, the the unapproachable glory uh, of God's dwelling place. Uh, And by doing so, by God taking Jesus up into heaven, uh, it confirms the fact that Jesus truly is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And it's very interesting that Luke focuses in on the fact that the resurrected Jesus was teaching his disciples about the kingdom of God. That phrase, the kingdom of God, shows up all over the place in the Gospels. And in chapter 24 of his Gospel, we see something of what it means that the resurrected Lord was teaching his disciples about this. So let me read a couple passages from Luke 24. Uh, Verse 27 Jesus had met these, uh, these disciples on the road to Emmaus, you know, and they were really despondent about the way that things had worked out in Jerusalem. <clears throat> they thought surely Jesus would be the, the Messiah, the Savior, and yet they killed him, right? The, the leaders of Jerusalem had him put to death by the Romans. Uh, that just doesn't work in our minds. How is he supposed to be the Savior, and yet he was killed by his own people, um, it didn't, I guess it didn't register with the fact that they'd, they'd already heard reports that he was raised from the dead. <laughs> uh, they were still despondent, and they were still leaving Jerusalem. And as they were going out, Jesus encountered them. And it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then later in chapter 24, verses 44 to 49, He's with his uh, disciples again, and he, says, uh, he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning... From Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So, commentator David Peterson says this He was specifically teaching his apostles how to interpret his death and his resurrection in the light of Scripture. So his speaking about the kingdom of God included helping them understand his role as the Savior, the Messiah, from the Old Testament. And it included the fact that his disciples would be witnesses to all the nations starting from Jerusalem and emanating outward. And it included the fact that he was promising power to them, power that was brought by the Holy Spirit. Now, a good Jew who knew his Bible 
uh, especially if he was familiar with Isaiah's prophecy, would recognize all these elements were connected with the kingdom of God. For example, in our Old Testament reading, if you want to turn back there from Isaiah 44, and this really is uh, representative of several places where we see this this kind of prophecy taking place in Isaiah's book. He ties all these things together. God says, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And down uh, in verse 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. For centuries, uh, the Jews had read passages like this, and they had understood them to mean that the coming of God's kingdom would be accompanied by the outpouring of God's spirit and the testimony, the witness of God's redemption, his making all things right through the Messiah, who is the, the one true king. And for centuries, they had thought this meant that political, national Israel would be delivered from their enemies and exalted above all the surrounding nations by God. You may remember that we spent quite a bit of time on this as we went through the last third of Mark's gospel. Israel had become a self-centered people, right? Not interested in God's original plan for them to be a blessing to the nations and the means by which his salvation would extend to all peoples. Israel was meant to be the starting point for worldwide missions. Do you remember when God promised to bless Abraham, to make him a father of a multitude of nations? Do you remember when Jacob blessed his son Judah, through whose line the Messiah would come, And said to him uh, that to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. And how about when Solomon prayed and dedicated the temple and gave the benediction at the opening ceremonies, the temple being the heart of Israel. And he said that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. That was the point of the temple. Israel was intended to be the center of God's gracious activity that extended to everyone in the world, but they despised those wicked Gentiles. They couldn't wait for the kingdom of God to come and put all those other nations in their place under us. And unfortunately, it's not just the ancient Jews who are so self-centered. It's easy for anyone to relate to them. And that's apparently true even of Jesus' own disciples who had spent three years listening to him teach on the kingdom of God. Verse 6, it says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Lord Jesus, now that you've died, 
and shown your power over death. Will you finally deliver Israel from the hands of those evil nations and make us the political superpower we've been expecting? They've been taught by the resurrected Lord himself about his true mission of redemption from all the scriptures, from Moses and all the prophets. And still they ask that question. They are mistaken about the nature of the kingdom. And Jesus corrects them. And he actually does so rather graciously. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. First of all, he says, have a little humility. right? It's not just that the disciples didn't know the times or seasons or couldn't know the times or seasons that the Father had appointed. It's that they shouldn't know the times or seasons that the Father had appointed in his own authority for the restoration of the kingdom. Deuteronomy 29, uh, verse 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. John Calvin says, uh, This is the true means to become wise, namely, to go as far forward in learning as our Master Christ goes in teaching and willingly to be ignorant of those things which he conceals from us. Secondly, after his call to uh, humility, in response to his question, he doesn't really give a yes or a no, does he? They asked him, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? I I think he doesn't answer yes or no, uh, because the answer is actually both yes and no. He says, if you're thinking that I'm going to restore the kingdom to Israel in the sense that means exalting national Israel and crushing all the Gentile nations, no. But if you're thinking that I'm restoring the kingdom to Israel in the sense of the original intent of God to make Israel a blessing to the nations, yes. The restoration of the kingdom, Jesus says, looks like spirit-empowered witness to all peoples. You will bear witness about me, he says, starting here in Jerusalem where there are deadly and powerful enemies all around. And then in all Judea and Samaria, where the Jews have despised those traitors for centuries. And then to the end of the earth, where you will have to overcome all kinds of ethnic and cultural and linguistic and religious barriers in order to share the gospel. He says, the strength for this mission, the power, will be supplied by the Holy Spirit who has been promised by God the Father for hundreds of years, whom I promise to you, whom I will send you from the Father's right hand when I ascend there. 
This is a fulfillment of what God has been doing since the beginning of redemptive history. The whole world has dwelt in darkness, out of fellowship with him. And he has been working in the world to reconcile all things to himself. His view has always been global, even when he's been working specifically, uh, primarily with national Israel. His view has always been global. Isaiah's prophecy includes God speaking to his Messiah in this way. In Isaiah 49, 6, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Speaking to his Messiah. Jesus is the light of the nations. He is the one who can bring people from the end of the earth to God. He is the one who fulfills God's initial purpose for Israel because he is the true Israel. He's the true man of God. He's the true son of God. Israel failed in their mission. They rejected their mission. But Jesus embraced his mission to the point of death on a cross. And the book of Acts is the beginning of the story of the success of his mission. Jesus restores the kingdom by accomplishing Israel's mission to bear witness to the one true God in all the earth. And he restores the kingdom by using messed up people like us, people who just refuse to understand what he's doing, just like the apostles. He restores the kingdom by using messed up people by filling them with his Holy Spirit, with his word of grace as testimony on our lips. Peterson says, Jesus calls the apostles to be the nucleus of the servant community that he will use to bring the message of salvation to Israel and to the Gentiles. Then he quotes another fellow uh, by the name of Tita. The promise of God's reign is not simply the restoration of the preserved of Israel, as we read in Isaiah 49, but the renewal of the vocation of Israel to be a light to the nations to the ends of the earth. Jesus is the light of the nations, and by extension, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you believe in him and put your trust in him, then you are caught up in the restoration of the kingdom and the renewal of Israel's vocation as you participate in the proclamation of the gospel to all peoples. Verses 9 through 11 of our text. When Jesus had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went... Behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So our church uh, is named after this event, the bodily ascension of Jesus into heaven. The ascension is good news, right? Because by the ascension, Jesus is confirmed as the Savior 
and the Lord, who had been prophesied for, for hundreds, even thousands of years. Uh, he's the Lord of heaven and earth, and the ascension is the confirmation of that. And these men who were telling the, the apostles uh, to be encouraged, these men, they're really angels, right? And they encouraged the apostles with the thought that since everything else about Jesus has come true, as has been verified by his exaltation into heaven, then his return will surely also come to pass someday. Peterson again says, The ascension of Christ is a guarantee that the end will come and all God's purposes will be fulfilled. And the ascension is a call to mission. As this age is characterized by the fact that Jesus is continuing his work on earth through his people. So, the, the words of the uh, men dressed in white, the angels, are in effect, cheer up and get to work. Jesus has given his disciples, his, his apostles, clear instructions. Unfortunately, you almost get the sense that they don't know what to do other than stare up and hope that Jesus comes back right away. They continue staring into heaven. Really, as you continue through the book of Acts, you get the sense the apostles really kind of start to get things in chapter 2 when the Spirit's poured out on them, and they proclaim the gospel to, to all the people who are gathered there at Pentecost. But even then, there's still hesitation and there's still reluctance on their part. Through the book of Acts, there's, there's this hesitation to take the gospel out into the world. And that's a bummer. But you know what? That's okay. Only Jesus is perfect. Only Jesus perfectly cares for and executes the mission of God. And he is the one who is building his church. All glory to him for doing it by using broken people like us. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, um, you came and you taught us and you laid down your life for us and you took up your life again and you continued to teach us and you continue to give us good gifts by your Spirit and you've given us your Word by which we can learn more about you and about your kingdom. We pray that you would be our King. We know that your kingdom is wherever you rule in the hearts of your people by your Spirit and through faith. And so we submit ourselves to you. We trust in you that you uh, have good in store for us. And Lord, we're excited about the fact that you've called us to, partic to participate in your very own work, that you've not left us on the earth without a purpose, but that you've given us a sure purpose and that you've given us the sure hope of its fulfillment. You will one day return and make all things right and set up your kingdom in the new heaven and new earth forever. Lord Jesus, we look forward to that day. Would you give us strength as we think about your gospel, as we think about your grace and your mercy toward us? 
Give us strength as we think about your resurrection from the dead, your power over death itself, and as we think about the fact that you dwell now, as you have for 2,000 years, in heaven at God's right hand on our behalf, making heaven our home. We, we thank you for your care for us and for your work in the world, and we submit our lives to that work for your sake and for the sake of your kingdom, we pray. Amen.